Today will be the 16th sermon in the series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be dealing with, again, the subject found in Matthew 5, verse 5, which reads, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And in this text, we looked at last week what it means to inherit the earth, its relationship to meekness, and meekness's relationship to God's blessing of grace. And again, we point out, as all of these Beatitudes emphasize, the word blessed means happy or a state of grace. These Beatitudes flow from the new birth. And if a person has never been born again, they cannot manifest these Beatitudes in their lives. And our Lord Jesus Christ is beginning his ministry here by setting forth that his kingdom is entirely different than all the other kingdoms of this world. His kingdom is a kingdom of truth, of moral principles in the lives of how people govern themselves. And he's also emphasizing in this fashion, blessed are the meek, yes, they and they only are blessed. All of these people that are described here in the Beatitudes are the subjects of Christ's kingdom, and they and they only are the truly blessed people in this life. And these characteristics so confounded his hearers because they had not been presented with this concept of how a person could be mourning and yet be happy, how that they could be meek and yet be uh, succeeding, how they could be hungering and thirsting, and yet being filled, how they could be merciful and pure in heart, and how they could be peacemakers and not get run over in the affairs of life. Now, today, today we'll deal with the last part of this subject of inheriting the earth in this fashion. First, we'll look at the relationship between God's blessings, spiritual meekness, and the inheriting the earth. Excuse me. What does it mean to inherit the earth? We looked at the word inherit last week and we found that it meant to come into possession or repossession of that which originally belonged to another. After that person dies, then the heir comes into possession of certain things. The term the earth we found means whatever God's allotted appointment for our lot in life is. God gives each of us certain talents, and if it be but a glass of water, then that's what God requires us out of us to be responsible for. And so we must learn contentment to dwell in whatever state that God's appointed lot is for us. So the word or the terms inheriting the earth can be defined like this. It is the repossessing of a restored ability to be content with whatever God's appointed lot for my life shall be. Now, how does this relate to meekness? We have studied meekness as being this. It is an humble, quiet, gentle, contented response to the treatment which I receive from others. Now, say that again. Meekness is that quiet, gentle, humble response to the treatment that I receive from the hands of others. Now, how does meekness relate to blessing? We see that the Spirit of God in regeneration 
imparts to man this meek character of Christ. So try to get these three things in line. God's grace of regeneration comes, imparts into our character through faith in Christ, the characteristic of meekness, which allows me to react to the actions of others in a meek, submissive, gentle state of affairs, which in turn allows me to inherit my life or control my life to realize that whatever extent or state I'm in, I can be content in that state. If others are heaping persecution upon me, I can still control my life through the grace of God. If I am on the throne, I am still in a state of blessing with God. If I'm in the dungeon, yet I'm still enabled to be in control of my life because I have inherited the earth. I have been able by God's grace to repossess the state of contentment that whatever comes, I can say with the songwriter, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now, let's see this relationship illustrated in the Bible in the book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We'll see that our conversion experience illustrates this thing of meekness, of grace, and of inheriting the earth. The book of Titus, chapter 3, and verse 1. Now, notice carefully the order, and then we'll be bringing it out in just a moment. Paul writes to this pastor, Titus, and he says these words, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, notice that the end result of this great gospel is that we are made heirs of something which is called eternal life. An heir is a person which comes into possession of something after a certain person has died. Jesus Christ died in order that we, his people, might inherit something. And we inherit many, many things. We inherit forgiveness of sins. Oh, what a blessing it is to know that our sins are forgiven and we're standing in a justified state with God to where God does not impute sin to the believer. But God does more than that. He restores us to the place in life where he originally intended for us to be when he created Adam. At that place where Adam was perfectly content with the place where God had put him at to rule there over the heaven and the earth and the affairs thereof. And so what salvation is resulting in is that through the grace of God, 
sinners are restored to a state of fellowship where they can inherit the earth. Now, let's notice the order here. First, verses 1 and 2 of this chapter give us an exhortation. But it's an exhortation which reminds us what we once were in verse 3. Man, by his physical birth, will exhibit these characteristics. Now, here is what I was before the grace of God came to me. I was a foolish person. I was a disobedient person to God. I was deceived in my thinking. All I lived for was to serve many different selfish lusts and pleasures. I lived a life of malice and hatred. I was envious of what other people had in their possession. I could not be content with my life when I could look out and I could see other people possessing what I did not possess. And that brought envy, jealousy, and hatred in my heart. And not only uh, internally, but a hating of one another. I found within my bosom uh, a jealousy and even a hatred toward those other people which had more than myself. And when I was in that state now, verse 4, we see the grace of God, the love of God, appearing to me by the Holy Spirit of Christ. In verse 5, it tells us that this was not based upon something in me or something that God saw in me. Notice, God appeared to me as a sinner, not by works of righteousness, which I had first done, but according to his own sovereign mercy. He did not have to come to me. He did not have to come and make me a new creature in Christ Jesus. He could have left me the same place he left the angels when they sinned and and departed from his presence. But there was nothing in me that took the initiative to cause the grace of God to come and give me this great mercy of grace and regeneration. When I was dead in trespasses and sin, God quickened me or made me alive in Christ Jesus. So he's emphasizing that when I was what I was in verse 3, then here God's love appeared to me in verse 4. But verse 5, it was not because of something I deserved or something I did first to cause God to take the initiative. God took that first step and there was a response because his grace overpowered my sinfulness and where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And that's why my soul's salvation is not based on something in me, an act which I perform to make myself acceptable to God, but all the actions which I perform are the fruits of God's grace working in me, that which is pleasing in his sight. So it's not by works of righteousness or human merit which brought the mercy of God upon me. God did not look down and see Jim Gables uh, living a certain type of life. And then he said, now then, he's worthy of my mercy. What is mercy? What is grace? It is unmerited favor. It is not God looks down upon me and he sees my works. He sees my faith and my faith and my works merit his mercy. No, no, no. It is his mercy which is showered out upon me, a poor sinner. 
which in turn causes me to see my lost condition, what I was in Christ Jesus. And when he shed this mercy upon us, he describes that as the washing of regeneration, the cleansing of the new birth, which is brought about by the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now, note that carefully. The Holy Spirit comes and he restores to me a disobedient child now, the ability to once again live in that state where God formerly intended for me to be. God came and through the death of Christ, he purchased grace for sinners such as I. And he imparts this grace and applies this grace by the Holy Spirit. And that grace in turn restores me to a place where I can now inherit the earth where I can now live my life to the glory of God, where I can now that whatever my appointed lot is in life, whether I'm a king, whether I'm a pauper, whatever it is, I can live that life because I know that this is where God would have me to be. And I can say with Job, when God blesses him with numerous children, oh, thank you, Lord, this is what you've done in my life. And I can also say with Job as he stands by the graves of those children when the tornado wind hit the home and he stands there with a broken heart and he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, a person cannot say that by nature because a sinner by nature is self-centered. He wants everything for his own happiness, but only the saint can live for the glory of God. And that saint cannot do that without the grace of God taking the initiative. Some of you, you've said to me, Pastor, I don't know whether I can stand in that day when that day comes that I have to, depart, I have to part with a loved one, when I have to part with a life companion that I've enjoyed, their presence for some 30 or 40 years, or I have to take a child out and bury them. I don't know whether I can take that or not. Let me give you a little word of instruction here. You will not take that unless the grace of God precedes you. But the grace of God will take the initiative in that hour and will speak peace and comfort unto your heart. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And God gives us grace to live a day at a time and to inherit our portion in life. You that are here today, you have a certain appointed portion in life, certain talents and privileges that God has given you. But you'll have to confess as a Christian that you're like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're but strangers passing through this life. And that every day brings a change in the affairs of your life. Some of you are yet young. You have small children here today. You won't always be a child. You will soon be a teenager. Some of you that are here today, you're soon going to be passing from that of teenagehood into that of, of young adults. And then you'll pass from that into middle age and then into the elderly age. And all of those are God's changing appointments for your life. And every time those change, it's going to be, you're going to have to learn to say with Paul, I've learned to say that whatever state I'm in, therewith to be content. So now here the grace of God comes to man. It takes the initiative. It renews man 
and makes us what God would have us to be. And then the fruit of that is meekness. Now, notice back up in verses one and two. Now, Paul says on the basis of God saving us and shedding abroad upon us the Holy Ghost through Christ our Savior, that we might be justified by his grace. On the basis of that, he tells us now, don't go out and try to overthrow your governments. Don't go out and try to overthrow the laws of your land. Obey those magistrates. Submit yourselves unto their teaching and unto their laws, for there are therefore our good. To be ready to every good work. Don't go out being a brawler, but be gentle and show all meekness unto all men. So you see the order? God's grace comes and produces meekness, and that enables us to be a law-abiding citizen according to the laws of the land and according to the teachings of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And when God's will says this, why we say, yes, Lord, speak, for your servant saith. And when the laws of the land say, now here for your protection, we have certain guidelines and certain rules that we've got to live by and to protect the rights of each other, then we as Christians says, all right, those laws are just and good. We will not go out and try to become a law unto ourselves, but we will submit ourselves unto our courts, unto the principalities and unto the powers that be. So here is the illustration of meekness and inheriting the earth that our Lord is talking about, which comes from the new birth. Now, why did our Lord say this at this time? Why did he make such a statement as this? Each one of these beatitudes is designed to correct an erroneous way of thinking in the minds of his hearers. The people that were listening to him were amazed at the way he taught and he said, they said, never a man spake like this man. We've never heard anybody teach like this before. What was the fatal error in which our Lord was trying to correct in the minds of his hearers when he uttered, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth? What was in the minds of his hearers that they were thinking, which was an error in which our Lord was trying to correct? All right, and I believe it to be this, so follow me carefully. His hearers were predominantly Jewish, and the Jewish hope which had, they had come to look forward to was of becoming world leaders and ruling over the Romans and the other people of their day. Now, get that in mind. As Jesus was speaking, the hope that existed for his hearers and what they had been taught by their Pharisees and by their scribes, their religious teacher, was that one day Messiah will come. He will overthrow with military rule and authority the nation of Rome, and he will set up a political, materialistic kingdom which will be enforced by military law and power. And they thought that when the Messiah came, this is what he would do. Before Jesus came upon the scene and after Jesus came upon the scene, there were many false messiahs that the people thought this was the Messiah. And they rallied around behind them in with armies. They took up uh, swords 
And they began to lead rebellious guerrilla bands against the army of Rome. And they would always end up being slaughtered and wiped out. But then there would be another person come on the scene. He would say, I'm the Messiah. And they would believe him. And that's why when our Lord was here, he said, beware of false Christ and false messiahs. And this is what he's trying to correct, is this conception in the minds of the unregenerate Jewish people that one day their messiah would fulfill a hope for them to enable them to become world leaders and rule over others. Now, why did they think this? Where did they get this idea from? They thought this not because this was what the Old Testament prophets had taught them, but because of some 400 years which had elapsed between the closing of the Old Testament scriptures, which was Malachi, until Jesus Christ came upon the scene. Between the books of Malachi and the books of Matthew, there are 400 years of history in which our Lord did not speak to man through divine revelation. And so during that time period, there was a group of people, religious leaders, that became known as Pharisees and Sadducees. These were the doctors. These were the theologians. And they became so popular that it came sort of a belief that if you were not a theologian, you just couldn't understand the Old Testament revelation. And so they began to interpret those Old Testament preachings of the prophets, that when the prophets said a Messiah is going to come and he's going to save us from our enemies, these scribes and Pharisees began to interpret the enemies as being Rome, Greece, and all of these other political world empires. When, if you go back and look at the prophets, they were not preaching that the Messiah was going to come to deliver the Jews from their political enemies, but their enemies were their sins of disobedience against the will of God. And so they took the same scriptures, Isaiah, Malachi, Jeremiah, which preached a Messiah who was going to come and deliver his people, and they gave those understanding a carnal interpretation that the deliverance would come in the realm of the physical, the material, and that the kingdom would come with external splendor and glory, the Roman government would be overthrown, the Jews would be elevated to world leaders, and all the rest of the Gentiles would serve the Jews and carry out their wishes. Now, not everybody within the nation of Israel believed this. In fact, the spiritual ones of God, the ones God was opening their eyes had a correct understanding of the prophets. We see this when Jesus came. If you will, turn with me to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And we'll see here that when this child Jesus was born, the Messiah, there were some people in Israel which had a correct understanding of what the Messiah was going to do. In Luke chapter 1 and beginning in verse 66, we have the testimony of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Now, he was a prophet. And here we read in verse 66, 
And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? Well, this is a miraculous child. What's he going to be like? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Now, notice he's interpreting the Old Testament prophets. But what did he understand those prophets to teach? Did he understand those prophets to teach that the Messiah was going to give them a political deliverance? Well, let's see what the Holy Ghost says. And hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our what? Enemies. And from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he might grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their, what? Sins. Now, notice that. He did not say that when he promised salvation by the prophets, that he was going to deliver them out of the hands of their enemies, that their enemies were the Romans. Their enemies were their sins. And those were the things which the Messiah came to deliver them from in order that they might be enabled to once again inherit the earth, to live as God intended for them to live. Read on. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of, what is it? Peace. Now, what did our text say here a few weeks ago? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And our Psalm chapter 37 and verse 11 says that they shall have great peace that, that rest in the Lord. Now, you see how easy it is to misinterpret the Scriptures? Here's a group of hearers such as you are here this morning. They had been taught for some 400 years through oral tradition that the prophet said the Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to save us from our enemies and we're going to be able to rule and reign. And then Jesus comes, but when he comes, he finds some spiritual people there in Israel. He finds the Zacharias who understood that the Messiah was not coming to overthrow Rome with a political kingdom, but he came to set up a moral and spiritual kingdom that would deliver people from their sins to enable them to serve God in holiness and righteousness. Now, the same thing we see in the life of Simeon. Turn over to the second chapter of Luke, the second chapter of Luke and verse 25. 
Here's old Simeon, just ready to die. And all of his life he's been looking for the consolation of Israel, the hope of Israel. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, that means the hope of Israel. What is Israel's hope? Is Israel's hope a political kingdom? Or is it a spiritual and moral kingdom that shall enable them to serve their God? Now, here this man's waiting for the hope of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. He's a spiritual man. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, or Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, they took he him up into his arms and blessed him and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in what? Peace having uh, according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which hath appeared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Now, what, is, what do the meek have? They have peace. And here's this old man says, Lord, take me on home now. My hope's been fulfilled. I've seen the Messiah. Here is my salvation. He's come to bring peace for his people, those which comprise Israel and those out of the Gentiles. Let me go on home. So not all of the hearers in Israel were carnally minded, but our Lord was trying to overthrow the concept in his hearers that his kingdom was going to be put up there on the throne of Rome like Caesar. We even read in John chapter 6 and verses 14 and 15 that our Lord was forever having to deal with the multitudes into thinking that he was going to be a political king. In John chapter 6 and verse 14, after he fed the 5,000, we read these words. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth that prophet which should come into the world. And when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. I'm reading today out of a certain Bible in which the footnotes in that Bible says that Jesus came to set up a political kingdom for the Jews. And if the Jews had accepted him, he would have set up his kingdom right then and there. And uh, yet here we have a multitude of Jewish people which tried to force Jesus to be the king, but he turned them down. Now, I'll let you solve that. Uh, let you take up that issue with that particular view of prophecy. Jesus did not come to set up a political kingdom for the Jews. And if he did, he certainly had a marvelous opportunity, for here at this time his followers were in favor of him. They wanted him to be king, but he did not come to set up that type of a kingdom. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. And don't you look around and say, here's the kingdom or there's the kingdom. For the kingdom cometh not with outward observation. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. My kingdom is a, is a spiritual kingdom based on moral principles, which shall enable a person, when he puts those principles in life, to be able to rule and reign over his life and not let people around him rob him of his peace and joy. Whatever his circumstances are in, he's the victor. He's the conqueror. 
Because he's at peace with God, he's at peace with himself, and he's at peace with his fellow man, and he's content, mild, and a meek person. And so you put that into life, and you can even be able to go to a cross like Jesus. And if you want to see a king, you look how he came into Jerusalem, meek and lowly, riding on a little ass or a little donkey. And you want to see a king, you look to an old rugged cross, and you'll see how Jesus conquered sin. You see that? He conquered it through meekness. He conquered it through meekness. And dear people, that's the way that the church of Jesus Christ is to conquer the world today. It's not by amassing huge armies of Christians and so forth, and let's go out there and let's overthrow the non-Christians. No, it's by the spirit of meekness that others see Christ in us and begin to come and take hold of us and ask unto us the way of salvation. So here we see the fatal error which was in the mind of the Jewish thinkers. But let's bring this up today. That's 2,000 years ago. And we're not Jews. We don't think like Jews do. We're Gentiles. And there is an important distinction that has to be made in the Scriptures for that. But the Gentiles also have an error in thinking. And the world today, if you and I are a Gentile and we have inherited a Grecian culture, and we have in, been influenced by the great philosopher Plato, whether we've ever heard of him or whether that we've ever read a single word he said. If you have been raised in America and under American education, you have been educated under Plato's philosophy of what man is and what he's to, to seek out after. And this philosophy of the world says that we are to be strong. We are to exert our abilities we are to exert self-confidence and aggressiveness or else other people will just run over us and we'll end up in the ditch somewhere. Now, you take that philosophy in our economic world today and you'll see what the way the Grecians think. How many bank presidents would call you in if you started sweeping the floor in the bank as a janitor? And they would say, now, if you want to get up in this organization, you're going to have to be meek. Hmm? That's not the way you get advanced in the Grecian world. You've got to step on people to get up. You've got to exert yourself. You've got to throw back your shoulders and let everybody know that you're somebody, you see. You've got to go around and they're always exhibiting strength, self-confidence, and aggressiveness. Now, I'll share a little illustration here with you. Before I entered the ministry, my wife and I lived in Los Angeles, California. I was working in electronics and got laid off through the loss of a government contract uh, one day. And so we were sort of low on funds. I saw an ad in the paper. It says, earn $25,000 a year, first year. Well, that sounded great for about an 18-year-old. No, I was about 20, I guess, then. 20-year-old man. So we went and applied for it. Walked in to that uh, building that day, I saw some of the sharpest dressed fellows that I ever hoped to see. My every hair in place, those shiny dark suits, shoes spotless, and you could just tell that they, uh, uh, every one of them bore the image of success and self-confidence. Didn't know what the job was going to be. So we went in, went in finally into the manager. He said, uh, this position is selling encyclopedias door to door. And he says, you think you can do that? I said, I don't know. I've never tried. 
He said, we'll guarantee you if you'll follow our principles here, you'll be making twenty to $25,000 a year. He says, I want you to talk to some of these other men here in the office. So here come these. I was about 20. There was a 17-year-old boy there. There was an 18-year-old, and the rest of them were about my age. And they started giving their testimonies, making five, $600 a week, selling uh, encyclopedias door-to-door. And he said, now, Mr. Gables, if you want to get somewhere in life, this is your golden opportunity. But you're going to have to learn certain principles. Now, he said, we first, before we'll deal with you any further, we want you to take this presentation home and commit it to memory. Five thousand words. You've got to know when to say this. You've got to know when to take it out of the briefcase and present this uh, folio here and here and here. And you've got to know how to make the final sell. But before we'll show you how to do that, you've got to memorize the presentation by heart to show to us that you are interested. So we went home that night and what did it take? One day, one evening, we committed a 5,000 word presentation to heart. Walked back in the next day and he said, what are you doing here? He said, I sent you home to learn the presentation. I said, I've got it. He said, nobody ever learns it, at least for three to four weeks. And then they come back. I said, I'm ready. He says, I want to hear it. So we rattled off the whole presentation. Didn't miss a word, some 5,000 words. He says, you know, son, you've got it. You've got it. You're going places. He said, let me talk to you. He sent the others out of the room. He says, listen, you won't be where they're at very long. It won't be long for you'll be up here where I'm at, telling these others how to do it. He said, I can tell you've got what it takes. He says, now I'm going to send you out with some of these others, and they'll show you how to present this presentation in the home, and you can start right now, today. So we went out. I went out two or three days. I learned how they did it. And I shall never forget the final call I made, which settled my brief period in selling encyclopedias. We went into a home, and there was a mother whose husband had left her, and two little girls, one about selling diapers and the other one toddling around the house. The room was in a mess. It was chaos through the whole house, dirty. You could tell the mother was in dire straits. And so she revealed her position after he'd rattled off the presentation and so forth. She said, sir, I want you to look at that table. She said, I've got one loaf of bread left on that table. And it's going to cost me about 30 cents to go out and get another loaf. And I don't know where that 30 cents is coming from. And that young man that I was with that day to show you how that you can be successful and be aggressive. Before we left the house that day, he convinced her that she was going to be doing one of the worst things in not loving her kids if she didn't buy a $450 set of encyclopedias. And he said, here's all you have to do. It's going to cost you 22 cents down payment. 22 cents. And she signed a contract that day for 22 cents to buy that set of encyclopedias and to pay it off on that basis from there on out. And I left that house that day and I said, did that bother your conscience any? He said, what? I said, that didn't bother you to take bread off that table for a set of books? He said, why, land, no. I'm out here to sell encyclopedias. 
So I went back into the office that day, walked in, never will find, see the fellow's face, just as I'm looking at your face right here. Went in and I said, sir, I'm not interested in this job. And his mouth fell open. He said, what's the matter? And I said, I saw what it takes to have to sell this particular product. And I just do not have it in me to be able to do that. And he said, who do you think you are? You better than anybody else? Then he uttered a several chosen choice words describing my character. And then the last thing he said to me when I went out the door, after using a few more words of profanity, he said, Sir, you'll never amount to anything. And that's the last time I ever saw him. I'd like to know where he's at today. He may be the head of General Motors, for all I know, because he had everything going for him. But my friend, if he were here today, I'd tell him, just the same as I'm telling you, I have something he doesn't know anything about. He may be able to tear down his barns and build bigger barns, but my friend, if he does not know the basic way to inherit our own life and to live, then my friend, he's missing out on it all. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world? And lose his own soul. Now remember this, and I have to bring this out because I've had all the sales courses that are available today. Some of you are here today and you're salesmen. You have to use some of these principles in your, in your sales courses. And they're all right up to a certain position. But you be very careful of taking the principles which Dale Carnegie, Earl Nightingale, and Norman Vincent Peale use in sales and bring that over into Christianity. All of those are based on positivism, which deals with no negatives. And our Lord Jesus Christ's teaching of the Christian life is that there is a negative and a positive. Blessed are the poor, that's negative, for theirs is the kingdom, that's positive. Blessed are they that mourn, that's negative. All of these beatitudes have a negative aspect and a positive aspect. And if we embrace the philosophy, if you will study it out and you're that interested in it, you will find that these men, I love Paul Harvey, I listen to him every day, but these men I've told you about, they have discovered principles and philosophies of life. But if you'll study where they got them from, they did not get them out of the Word of God. They got them from Plato. And the Grecian philosophers as to how to succeed in life. And then they have superimposed some of these into the scriptures. I read a book this past week that said Jesus was the first person who ever taught the power of positive thinking. My friend, before Jesus ever taught the power of positive thinking, he taught the power of repentance too. And repentance is negative. There must be a negative and a positive And we go out and we preach repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, to those of you that use these techniques and so forth in your businesses, well and fine. But be careful about trying to impose these upon our Christian life and then think of our Christian life as being successful only in the light of getting to the top of the business world. If you aren't appointed to make it there, my friend, you'll end up in mental depression wondering why you can't be another Dale Carnegie. Now, I know the books tell you you can. Anybody can if you'll just get rid of that negative thinking and just think positively about yourself. Don't you know the Lord helps those that help themselves? No, I don't. 
he helps those that can't help themselves. Hmm? All right? Which is it? When we were without strength, Christ died for us. It is not God helping those that help themselves. It is people who have come to the end of themselves and see that they cannot have what it takes that God reaches down and helps. Now, that's grace. And that's why the kingdoms of Christ, when we preach this today, and these ideas have been infiltrated into the Christian church, I experienced just as much opposition as Jesus did when he preached his philosophy of the kingdom to the Jewish hearers. Why, pastor, that isn't so. You know you're just getting a little off, you're getting a little extreme. That's what the Jewish hearers also felt. And my friend, if I'm wrong, you come and correct me. But I have studied these matters out. I've seen where they've come from. And when you mix grace in with Grecian philosophy, you cannot help but come up with a self-confidence that's based on human pride and not the grace of God. And I've seen it in people's lives. I saw it in my life. Begin to think, well, I'm better than somebody else because I've got more of what it takes. And I want everybody to see that I've got what it takes. My friend, I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes. And until my mouth is shut to see that I am nothing but a...